You can turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 19. I want to read for you the same two verses that we read last week. Again, we're settled down here for a while, or for a few weeks anyway. Matthew chapter 19, verses 23 and 24. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. This is God's word. You'll remember we're taking a couple weeks to draw out some practical applications from our Lord's warning here, asking questions like, why is it so difficult for a rich person to, the kingdom of, to enter the kingdom of heaven, and, and how should we think about material wealth with regard to this, this warning? So let's ask for the Lord's help as we study these things. Father, we do... We do thank you, and Lord, we do need you. Holy Spirit, we need you. Lord, I pray that these very simple truths would act as, as very simple and plain daggers into our heart, convicting us of sin, showing us your perfect holiness in all of your statutes and all of your law, Lord, help us to be a people who walk by faith in Jesus Christ and in the promises of His return and in the eyewitness accounts of His life and His death and His resurrection on our behalf. Lord, help us to be a people of faith. It's in His name that we pray. Amen. You may have a seat. I'll begin with a brief recap of what we studied last week under two simple statements. First, material wealth represents, that is, symbolizes, epitomizes, points men to and, and waves its hands in front of our faces and in front of our hearts and in minds. It represents all that is at odds with the life of faith, that is the life characterized by Christian faith, or we could say the Christian life. All of the things that we see and touch and hold in this world stand in front of us as things which potentially draw us away from the, the, the very thing we should be focused on, which is, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ. And statement number two, the natural man lives a life governed by, controlled by, motivated by those things. The things that he can see with his eyes, touch with his hands, smell with his nose, taste with his mouth, feel with his skin, experience in the natural world. That's, that's what the natural man lives for. So that's the end of the recap. Now, while I am under the impression 
that we are in the majority in this room who have been given a new nature by the power and working of the Holy Spirit. We've been born again. I also know at the same time when I approach these things that very few subjects can rouse the fury of our fallen nature more than a man standing in front of a group of other men telling them what to do with their material wealth, with their money, with their finances. Even as Christians, it can, it can make us angry. It can, it can, again, rouse that fury. So I, I want to just give you the Word of God today. That's, that's my goal every week, but I, I hope that you will see that today in the, in the simplicity of what I'm going to do, that all I want to do is read the, the verses from Scripture and then explain them and allow the Holy Spirit to use that to, to, to pierce your heart with the truth. And I, I believe that if you're truly filled with the Holy Spirit of God, if you're born again and you, you listen intently and humbly this will be liberating. The next two weeks will be absolutely liberating. And I've also been in prayer that if, if you're here and you've made a false profession, you're here under false pretenses, that during this time, even within your own heart, the Holy Spirit will say, See just how hard it is to maintain that facade when the finger of the Word is, is pressed into that sore. See, you don't know me. If you knew me, this would be liberating. And so I've been praying that, that, that even if you can fool all of us, that, that the Holy Spirit would say, see, stop trying and, and, and bow. You see, our God, and I've said this for several weeks now, as we've looked at the rich young ruler and this scene, our God is a God who requires a singular focus. And he requires detailed specificity with regard to obedience to his commands. So when Cain offered a sacrifice that was contrary to the, the dictates of God, the divine mandate, and then he slew his brother, revealing his idolatrous heart, God removed him from his presence. He didn't kill him, but he, he removed him from his presence and from the presence of God's people. When Lot's wife turned for, for one final gaze, just one look upon her idol, God turned her into a pillar of salt in a moment. When the Israelites for 400 years had been taken into Egypt and, and had no doubt over the generations had been enticed by their false gods and their, their pagan worship, the true God who had already selected those people out for himself comes, he conquers Egypt, he conquers their gods, not only their animistic, animistic gods, they considered Pharaoh, their king, to be God. And Pharaoh's son to be the, the up and rising, the up and coming God. And God says, away with Pharaoh and away with Pharaoh's firstborn son. And he calls his people out to himself. He brings them to the wilderness of Sinai and says, you're going to worship me. And when the Israelites there in the wilderness of Sinai wanted to worship according to a false image of God, he made them drink it. When Zimri thought that he might flaunt his idolatrous affair with a Midianite woman named Cosby and parade her before the assembly of God's people, God was pleased 
with the zeal of Phinehas as he got up in the middle of the worship service and grabbed his spear and impaled them both. God was pleased with that zeal because you don't, he, he does not deal with idolatry. Or he does deal, he, he does not allow idolatry. When the Philistines dared to place the Ark of God's Covenant in, in the same proximity as their false god, they awoke the next day to Dagon on his face, his head broken off, his hands severed, powerless, false god on his face before the Ark of the Covenant. Unless we think that this, that's just the Old Testament God, remember again Ananias and Sapphira. They, they wanted the, the, the praises of men for their sacrifice more than they wanted to honor the Holy Spirit. And so they lied to the Holy Spirit and made an open spectacle of this false giving and God killed them on the spot. You see, He, 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 he will not allow idolatry, especially in the midst of those who have taken His name, He will not allow it to flourish. He deals with it. And that, that's sort of the idea we see in the New Testament with regard to the church. He's not going to allow it to flourish. He will deal with it at some point or another. And so I want to make sure you know that it doesn't matter how you feel. And it doesn't matter what kind of emotional surges you get from time to time, somehow connected to Scripture or song or or Christianity, it doesn't matter how long you've been in the company of and, and received the smiles of God's people. It doesn't matter even, it doesn't matter if you have a great personal testimony and you can explain the gospel and you can produce some sort of outward fruit or, or somehow withhold your sinful nature long enough to gain membership in this church. If you're holding on to idols, even within your heart, God is none of yours. And you're none of His. You can fool men, but you can't fool God. And I would remind you that when Christ rose from the grave and ascended to the throne of power and dominion over all things, He is labeled King of Kings. King over all kings. Lord of lords. That's Lord over all lords. But He's also God over all gods. And so if you can't relinquish the rights of your material wealth, your money and your possessions, and submit to His mandated stewardship, then that ascension, that resurrection and ascension that He earned on, on, on behalf of His people is not yours. You have no part in it. You're still dead in sin. So my intention has been with all of this in our minds and in my mind and, and in my heart, my intention has been and will continue to be next week to just lay out a biblical worldview with regard to our finances, our material wealth, our possessions. And I hope you remember that list of things I read last week that I would include in this category. Your, your money in your pocket, money in the bank, money that's, that you have planned to spend elsewhere, or money, money signed away in a contract, whatever it might be, or even the anxiety in your heart that you have because you don't have the money you need. All of that. We've got to have a biblical worldview with regard to that. And since these things present such a danger and a temptation to idolatry, we saw last week the perils of material wealth, they require of us preventative care and preemptive caution. That's what we're doing, is we're, we're getting ready. Perhaps you would say, 
you know, God, God has my finances. Or maybe you've never considered it. You want to prepare for the day when the time comes when you may have to decide my money or God. I believe it's, it's fair to read in Scripture that there will come a time, in other nations it's already here, when the people of God will not be able to participate in the economy like the world because we're Christians. And it'll be very easy for us to say, well, you know, it's not really that big of a deal if I do this or this or this. God, God will be none of yours if that's the way you think. Remember when the Israelites... We're about to go into the land of Canaan. God said, don't intermarry and don't even look at the way that they worship their gods lest you become enticed in your heart and your mind to worship their gods the way you worship me. I'm, I'm not their gods and I won't even be worshipped like they worship their gods. And most of us have spent a long time sort of peeping over the, the fence into the backyard of the world, watching and learning how the, the world stewards their wealth, thinking, well, I'll just take my tips from them and, and learn how to steward your wealth the way they steward theirs. Some of you are perhaps straddling that fence. Some of you are already in the world and you've got a hole in your pants where you jumped over the fence. You're already there. You, you, you claim to be one of God's people and yet when it comes to the area of material wealth, there's no difference between what you do and what the world does. Because we've spent so much time drooling over the means and methods of the world, we have, as God's people, have begun to think that our lives, our checkbooks, our bank accounts, our garages, our weeknights and weekends are just supposed to look like theirs. That's what we take from in the world but not of the world. We, we think it means I live just like the world, I just don't really fully believe everything they believe. And that's not what it means. So I think it's time that we come out from among them. I think, I think we should, as God's people, stand appalled at the ways of the world. We, we should begin to cover our children's eyes so that they don't even see that godlessness. And the only way that's going to happen is, is when we turn our eyes to God and look and behold God and behold His Word and become so captivated with God in Christ through the power of the Spirit speaking through the Word that we don't see the world and we don't care what they do. That, that's where we have to be. Careless. I don't think there's... I really don't think there's such a thing as so heavenly minded you're no earthly good careless about the things of the world. And so that's what I want to do. So today we're going to look at the scriptural pattern that is, and, and when I say scriptural pattern here, God's standard for the procurement of material wealth. We, we saw the perils, the dangers, its antithesis toward faith, and so now we have to prepare ourselves. So the first thing we need to think about is the procurement of wealth. How to, how to obtain it, how to get it. Again, no area or no, no specific line item under the heading wealth is left out of bounds of God's Word. He's, he's given us His Word. It is sufficient for every good work, not just how you spend it. It's, it's not that Scripture just says, well, once you get the money, let me help you know how to spend it. No, He tells you how to get it. And so that's what we're going we're gonna to talk about today. 
the procurement of material wealth. So that, that would be the title. If you're putting your notes with last week, this would actually be Roman numeral number two. Last week we saw the perils of material wealth. Now the procurement of material wealth. We are commanded in Scripture to steward our bodies, that is, take care of ourselves. We're commanded to care for our families, those, those entrusted to us. And we are commanded to foot the bill for the ministry of the Word of God locally and globally. Now, those are, those are decent aspirations. Now, with such honorable aspirations, would it be appropriate then to assume that any method imaginable is acceptable for getting money? I think you would say no. Should we assume God's commanded me to do A, B, and C, therefore, whatever I have to do to do that, God's cool with it, right? That's wrong. The, the end does not justify the means. I hope that you agree that there are some ways of making money, of procuring wealth, of getting stuff that are unacceptable. Does everybody, are we, is that common knowledge? Some things are unacceptable. Now, I wonder, how did you come to that conclusion? Where did you go to learn that? Where, who told you where to put the line? Who told you where to establish your boundaries? Again, as Christians, I hope you would say, the Word of God, of course. I go to the Scriptures. And so, that's what I want to do. What, what does the Bible teach about procuring wealth and money? Where is the line? What is acceptable and what is not acceptable? So we'll look at two subheadings here. Divine prohibitions and divine directives. What has God said not to do and what has God said to do? I could give you one point. All I would have to tell you is what God has said to do and everything else would be off limits. But I want to be specific. So first, the divine prohibitions in procurement. That is, let's look at how the Bible says or we may not get money. We may not get wealth. How does God forbid us to acquire? What is not acceptable and therefore sinful when it comes to getting money, to getting stuff? I'll give you three things. Number one, the first prohibition is sinfully. Sinfully. I hope that's clear. Sinfully. We may not acquire money, acquire wealth, acquire stuff sinfully. Now, all of the prohibitions, of course, would be considered sin. But here I want to address explicit transgressions of God's moral law. In the Ten Commandments, explicit laws and our direct breaking of those laws. So first, Exodus chapter 20 and verse 15. We read, you shall not steal. You shall not steal. Now look this up this morning. It's very interesting when you, when you look back at the, at the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, the Greek actually trans, translates this, you shall not steal. It's the same. I think these four words are very, very simple. You shall not 
steal. You may not get money or wealth or possessions, and I would say even intangible earnings like MP3s, like a reputation, or like an identity. You may not get any of these things by any means that requires you to take something that does not rightfully belong to you. And that does rightfully belong to someone else. Now, if this command is going to make any sense to us at all, we have to understand that there is such a thing as personal property. I've said this before, I think. Some people under... under uh, uh, maybe a facade of piety say, well, everything belongs to God. Well, if everything belongs to God in that regard, then there's no such thing as stealing. You just take what you want. God gives to people stuff. And when He gives it to them, it's theirs to be stewarded according to His commands. And so if it is not yours, it's somebody else's. If it's not yours, you may not have it. If God has not given it to you by the means that we'll see later as acceptable... It's not yours. You may not have it. So that's the first of those commandments. Let's look at the tenth commandment. The tenth commandment, Exodus 20 and verse 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant. You may not covet him. Or his female servant. You may not covet her or his ox, or his donkey, you may not covet them, or anything that is your neighbor's. Again, we are assuming that your neighbor has personal, private property, and you may not covet anything. Now, what is coveting? It is desiring something in your heart that's not yours. And so, from this commandment we learn, you may not get money... You may not get possessions. You may not acquire material wealth or any other type of yield in any way that is motivated by the desire to have your neighbor's stuff. Something that isn't rightfully yours. So perhaps you're going about it the right way, but your motivation is, I want something that's not mine. And that's why you do it. Even if there's mutual consent... But the actions are motivated by the desire to have your neighbor's money or car or wife or gold watch. You may not acquire wealth that way. I'm talking about the way that you get it. Even if he says, yeah, I guess you can have it. But you started off wanting it, you may not do that. If God has given something to someone else, it's theirs. It's not their right to steward it in any way that they wish, nor is it your right to get it through their negligence or misfortune. You see, it's in this commandment, the tenth commandment, that we learn that our dealings with other people, and I think also with God as well, our dealings with other people and the morality of such dealings transcends external actions and moves into the motivations of the heart. That's the whole point of this commandment. It stands at the end and reads all the way back to the rest of them. It doesn't matter necessarily how you act. It matters how your heart deals in those actions. What, what, is, what are the motives of your heart? Because you can't see somebody covet and they can't see you covet. It's a desire of the heart. 
Now, a common objection to this type of teaching would say, well, we just want to have fun. It's just more fun when there's something at stake. You see, what you have just proven is that your motivation is not the enjoyment of the activity. The motivation is the fact that you have the opportunity to get something that's not yours. It belongs to your neighbor. And so, ultimately, you're entertained, you're amused only when you have the chance to get something that's not yours. You see, the motivation is sinful. The motivation is coveting. And so we may not earn money or collect any type of material wealth or possessions in any way that directly transgresses these moral laws of God. It's simple. In Proverbs 10 and verse 2 says, Treasures gained by wickedness do not profit, but righteousness delivers from death. See, you may think that you're providing. You may think that you're protecting. You may think, oh, we're just having a good time. It's all in good fun. You may think that because the end is honorable, then therefore the means to that end are justified. The Scripture teaches that at best you will end up in poverty and hardship, and at worst you will be heaping upon yourself the condemnation of God. Treasures gained by wickedness do not profit, but righteousness delivers from death. So you may not procure material wealth sinfully. Number two, you may not acquire material wealth speedily. Speedily. We're going to see in a minute that there are ways the Bible gives and God gives through Scripture. There are ways that God deems appropriate for material prosperity. And since this is the case, there are ways that are appropriate, then any attempt to circumvent those processes or the chronology of time required by those processes, that is, any attempt to get money fast, to get rich quick, is a sin. Whether your scheme works out or not is irrelevant. If you're trying to get money fast, the actions are sinful. Proverbs 28 and verse 20. A man, or a, a faithful man, will abound with blessings, but whoever hastens to be rich will not go unpunished. Now notice in this proverb there are two opposing types of people. There is the faithful man at the beginning of the proverb, and then at the end there is whoever hastens to be rich. As Christians, when we read this proverb, who is it that we are supposed to be? The faithful man or the one who hastens to be rich? The faithful man. That's, that's where we are. So in this proverb, the opposite of the faithful, godly man whose life is governed by biblical principles and godly wisdom, the opposite of all that is the one who hastens to be rich. I think that's simple. Now the word hasten here means to hurry, to rush, to act at a high speed. It means to hasten. And notice in this proverb that hastening leads to punishment. Whoever hastens to be rich will not go unpunished. Therefore, 
you are not at liberty to make money, to acquire possessions, to procure wealth in any way, any way that seeks to bypass the time-honoring means ordained by God. And so if someone approaches you with a way to get money or, or, or get some kind of possession, and the motivating factor th to their brainchild is, it'll be quick, it'll be hasty, we can, we can sidestep the passing of time and get to it faster, run. It, that's a sin that will damn you. It's a sin. It will not go unpunished. We run. Proverbs 28 and verse 22. A stingy man hastens after wealth and does not know that poverty will come upon him. Notice here, the kind of man that is trying to get rich quick. He's hastening after wealth. He's a stingy man. Anybody want that to be your descriptor, stingy man? No, we don't. Literally, it reads, a man with an evil eye. So this is the kind of person who wants to have material wealth without going through the God-ordained means of chronological patience and diligence. He's an evil-eyed man. Those who desire to get rich quick are those with an evil eye. They're stingy. And it says he does not know that poverty will come upon him. It seems that the sense of the proverb is this. If you have evil eyes, if you're, if you're wicked, if you're a stingy person going in to getting money, you're going to continue to be stingy after you've got it. And you're going to continue to be wicked after you've got it. And so you're probably going to squander it. You're not going to steward it well. If you didn't get it in a godly way, you're not going to steward it in a godly way. And so poverty is coming. So the sinfulness of your pyramid scheme or your fundraising efforts are not only in the fact that they are deceptive and they play upon the emotions of the poor and the needy and they do not actually provide what they promise. The sinfulness in these things is also the fact that they tell people that there is a way that you can earn money without doing much work, without letting time pass, that you can get money fast. And that's a sin. And I would say... Don't bring that into this church. The, the fellowship of this body is not going to be based on how many people you can get to come to your party on the weeknight and buy stuff. It's in the Holy Spirit of God. So don't bring the pyramid schemes and the, the sales gimmicks here. And I hope that won't characterize you outside of your church fellowship. Christian people do not have an acceptable means by which they can get money fast and honor the Lord. It's just how it is. And so, a word to the young people, which is all of us. I can think of two exceptions. A word to the young people. Wait your turn. We've got to wait. You've got to put in the time and you've got to put in the perseverance and the endurance and the faithfulness. Live long in your obedience. Work and sweat and toil until your back is bent and your knees are aching and your knuckles are cracking and your skin is wrinkling and then maybe God will bless you. He doesn't have to. He might. And if He does, it would be pure grace if He did. 
But stop thinking that you can be rich now. You, it's not going to happen. You have to work for it. And let time pass. You say, well, that seems hard. That's right. God's goal is not to make you happy. It's to put you through the hard stuff so that you come out better than you were when you started. So you may not earn material wealth in any way that is at its core based on speed or shortness of time. You may not procure wealth speedily. And then thirdly, you may not procure wealth selfishly. Selfishly. Proverbs chapter 13, verse 11. Wealth gained hastily will dwindle. But whoever gathers little by little will increase it. I'll read that again. Wealth gained hastily will dwindle. But whoever gathers little by little by little will increase it. Now there we would have a support for the previous point, little by little. That's how you get money, little by little. But notice here he says wealth gained hastily. Now I want to work on this because this is not the same word we've already seen. This is the word vanity, nothingness. The King James would actually says wealth obtained by vanity quickly diminishes or is quickly diminished. Vanity. This is the same word used throughout Ecclesiastes. Initially in chapter 1 verse 2 where we read vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. The word means meaningless, worthless, of no eternal significance. You remember the point of that book, Under the Sun, Down Here. If, that's, if this is all we've got is what's beneath the sun, it's vain. It's worthless. Everything we strive for, it is of no eternal significance. One commentator speaking of this proverb says, This is gain coming from nothingness. Coming from the unreal, secured in an unsubstantiated way. In other words, in this proverb, wealth gained hastily is wealth gained in ways that are meaningless. Ways that are worthless. Ways that in the grand scheme of your earthly existence, they mean nothing. So, why would a person be tempted to acquire wealth in ways that are described as meaningless, worthless, a vapor? Why, why would you want to earn money that way? Why would a person want to get money by scratching a piece of paper at the gas station? Worthless. Meaningless. It's a vapor. Why would you want to earn money? Because a sports team won. Or a horse ran faster than another horse. Or a car drove faster than another car. That's meaningless. At best, I would say, meaningless. That's, that's giving it the benefit of the doubt. It's meaningless and worthless. Why would a person want to get money this way? It's because in their pursuit of gaining material wealth, they don't take anyone or anything else into account, including the commands of God. They just don't care. In that moment, they don't care about eternal things. They don't care that there are transcendent things at hand. They act purely in a moment of complete and total isolation from reality. They just want a cheap thrill in that moment, the thrill of it. 
I would say a quick buck, but odds are you're not going to get the buck. You just want the thrill. You just want the feeling. It's pure selfishness parading as provision, parading as entertainment, parading as leisure. But it's just me, me, me. Again, we have objections like, well, I'm just trying to provide for my family. Listen, God has not given any man on earth a family so large with needs so great that God expects that man to set aside God's law and the discipleship of his family through obedience and their being able to watch it so that he can take care of them. God is not going to say, okay, you're the exception, you may sin. Nobody has those issues. If you want to provide for your family, get a job. If it's not enough, get another one. Just, just keep getting them. God, God has not put a, a, a barrier or a line as to how many jobs you can have. Just get a job. What is it about a little ball rolling around a roulette wheel or, or the roll of the dice or the, 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 the shuffle of the deck or, or the buy-in at the local gamble? It's just adrenaline. That's all it is. It's just a quick shot of adrenaline. It's the excitement that comes from it. It's you, you, you. So don't cruise around life getting cheap, quick, emotional thrills, scratching tickets, rolling dice, dealing hands, and tell me, well, I'm just trying to provide for my family. You do it because you love yourself and because you're a bad steward of God's money. Another common objection well, what if I gave the money to the church? I would say, don't bring that blood money into this church. God doesn't need it. God's not thinking, man, I wish I had some more money. He's not hoping that Covenant Bible Church can pull all of our, our schemes together to come up with just enough money so that He can say, now my glory will cover the earth like the waters cover the sea. God reigns. He doesn't need a dime. The, the, the box back there is not so that he can afford to do his work. It's for our obedience and our sanctification. He wants to see his bride cleaned up. And so that means we've got to struggle sometimes. And with regard to gambling and the lottery and things like that, God has commanded his people to give to the poor and needy, not steal from them by, by tricking their or taking advantage of their emotions and tricking them. Yeah. If you want to help the needy, give them money. Don't steal from them and say, well, I'm just trying to, I'm going to do it to give the money to the church or, or something like that. So you may not earn money in ways that are meaningless, selfish, vapors, quick thrills for personal pleasure. You may not have that money. When it's laying on the table, it's off limits. You can't have it. So as Christians who believe that in the 66 books of the Scriptures we have the inerrant and infallible Word of God that is sufficient and profitable for every good work, all matters concerning God's glory, man's salvation, faith, life, we have to agree that God has prohibited us to acquire any type of material wealth sinfully, speedily, selfishly. If you're beginning to think, well, that's going to lower the amount of money that we have, you're probably right. Christians have always been poor. Theft, get-rich-quick schemes, deception, dishonesty, gambling, small wagers, all of these have their foundation in God's moral law. You shall not steal. 
you shall not gain material wealth at the expense of another's loss. Even if they offer it up consensually and, and they're in agreement, somebody's going to lose. You can't take advantage of someone else's ignorance and sin by getting money. I would add into this category voluntarily, hear that, voluntarily taking part in government programs that use monies stolen from individuals to be redistributed to the masses. Anybody want to take a stab at what that's called? Somebody? Or what's, the, what's the, overall, the overall title? We call that socialism. Socialism. Don't vote in Bernie Sanders. We'll be a socialist. No, we're, we're already there. We're, we're a socialist country. We'd like to not be a communist country, but it's probably not going to work. It's socialism. When the government steals money from people and then says, we'll take care of this, and then they hand it out to everybody, that's socialism, and that's based on theft. Just because Uncle Sam approves doesn't mean God approves. Just because they make it a law doesn't say, well, I guess if the United States of America says it's cool, then I guess I'll bow out. No, no, it's still theft. So again, government health care, welfare programs, government education, social security, these are all structures built on you shall not steal. They say, we will steal. Well, take that. We'll tell you people how to spend your money. It's theft. So, again, we begin to think all of a sudden, how am I going to pay for this? How am I going to do that? What if I need this? What if I need that? It would be better to die disease-ridden in poverty and ignorance, not being able to read a word, knowing you obeyed God, than to have all of that stuff and to die knowing, oh, well, I lived off of stolen money. It's not the government's job to do the church's job. That comes on us. So, those are the divine prohibitions. Secondly, divine directives for procurement. This would be capital letter B under our second main heading. The procurement here is divine directives. If those are the ways that are unacceptable, then what ways are acceptable? Again, I, I've tried to cram them into three categories. What ways are acceptable for our procurement of wealth, possessions, money, etc.? First, you guessed it, work. Working for someone else is without a doubt the primary way God's people will gain money, material wealth. Working for someone else. In Genesis 2.15 we read, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. From the start, man was a worker. It was a good work then. It was, it was a delight to him, no doubt. After the fall, Genesis 3, 17 through 19, God speaking to Adam, he says, Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth to you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. God says, you're going to keep working. It's going to be harder now. You're going to work until you fall dead, and then we'll put you in the ground you've been working on your whole life. After the fall, man still works. Does that mean that work is somehow wrong? No. We have to work. Does that mean you can get out of it somehow? No. You have to work. Proverbs 10.4 says... A slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. 
the hand of the diligent. Ephesians 4.28 says, Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. We'll probably come back to that next week. 2 Thessalonians 3.12 Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. You are to earn your own living. Somebody else is not supposed to earn your living and you're not really supposed to earn somebody else's living. You are to earn your own living. The most godly way to earn material wealth is to work for somebody else. Now there are dangers to this. Proverbs 23.4 says, Do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. Now some would probably read that and say, I'm just trying really hard to keep from working. But that's not what he's saying here. Let me read Matthew Henry's common commentary on this. This is good. Quoting, Those that aim at great things... You know, that's, that's what we're told our entire lives until we are, are adults. Dream big, go after it, get it, get it. You know, all this stuff. You can be anything you ever dreamed, anything you ever wanted. He says, those that aim at great things fill their hands with business more than they can grasp so that their life is both a perfect drudgery and a perpetual hurry. Be not thou such a fool. Labor not to be rich. What thou hast or doest, be master of it and not a slave to it, as those that rise up early, sit up late, and eat the bread of carefulness, all to be rich. While it is perfectly acceptable and commanded that we work honestly to get money, we may not work for the purpose of being rich, with, that, with the goal of being rich. We do not work so that we can have selfish luxury. We work so that we can get what we need to do what we've been commanded to do, which we'll again look at next week. So don't work to get rich. And there are a lot of men who have, they think that it's a, a pride to, to work sun up to sundown to have a lot of stuff. And it's got a hold of them. They're slaves to it. They can't make any decisions without filtering through the idol of their finances and their money. They're a slave to it rather than having a master or being a master of it. So we must work. Secondly, the second way that we may earn money and honor the Lord is through a gift. Through a gift. That is, someone willfully, out of kindness or love, freely gives you something with no charge out of the abundance of their heart or their surplus. They just say, hey, take it. I would, I'm including in this category a, a gift like an inheritance from family members, gifts of charity and mercy, birthday presents, special occasion gifts, Christmas things, all perfectly acceptable. It's okay to receive a gift. We don't have to say, sorry, I can't take that. I'm trying to be poor right now. No, you can accept a gift. We, we know that the Lord was a recipient of gifts in His earliest days as an infant. And how will I prove this? Well, Proverbs 19.17 says, Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his deed. Again, the point is not generosity. The point is, how would that be good if the poor person was not allowed to accept a gift? 
He has to be able to say, thank you. I appreciate that. And it's okay. With regard to an inheritance, Proverbs 13, 22, A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, but the sinner's wealth is laid up for the righteous. Now I could break that one up again and say, who do we want to be, the good man or the sinner? We would say, I want to be the good man. So the good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. It is okay to receive that gift. Free of charge, whether through benevolence, friendship, inheritance, there must be no coercion. You can't approach a situation where a gift is not being given within your mind already establishing what you want so that you can then coerce them to give the gift. It must be freely given. So you can receive gifts. And then thirdly, the, a God-honoring way to get money is through investment. Investment. To divine investment is to commit money in order to earn a future return, using what you have to get something in the future. Now, the Bible speaks a lot about investment, although it doesn't really use our terminology. Here's an example, Proverbs 6, 6 through 8. Go to the ant, old sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief officer or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. The picture's simple. Plan for the future by working today. Make smart decisions that will benefit the future. So if you're the entrepreneurial type, you would do this by either buying or starting your own business. You take your money, you invest it in, in a, a, a product or, or perhaps materials, and then you work with those materials and then sell them later at an honest, reasonable price. All of that work is leading up to a future return. You're not expected, just because you're a Christian, you're not expected to work a product and then sell it for only what you have in it because you want to be honest. No, you wouldn't make a living that way. You can mark it up in order to make a profit according to fairness. That's a form of investing. You take your own funds and you, you work them with wisdom, with honesty, and you make a profit. If you fail, it's your loss. You only lost your own money, but we must deal honestly and wisely to try to prevent that. With regard to honesty, in Deuteronomy 25, verses 13 through 16, we read this command, You shall not have in your bag two kinds of weights, a large and a small. You shall not have in your house two kinds of measure, a large and a small. A full and fair weight you shall have. A full and fair measure you shall have that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. For all who do such things, all who act dishonestly, are an abomination to the Lord. The picture there is, when it comes to sell, in our terminology, and when it comes time to sell a pound of flour, and you get out the scale, and you pull out your pound weight, and you know good and well that thing only weighs 13 ounces, and you put it down, and you pour out the flour until it evens out, you know you've been dishonest. And then if somebody says, how much does that weight actually weigh? You slip it and say, well, it weighs a pound. Look, it's a pound. He says, no, don't do that. You have one weight, a fair weight, a fair measure. Be honest in your dealings. Remember Abraham when he was wanting to purchase the field of Machpelah from Ephron to bury his wife. 
And he says, I'm not going to sell it, let me buy it. I'm not going to sell it, let me buy it. What difference is 400 shekels between friends? He says, ha, 400 shekels. And he pays for it. He gives a fair price. He was a good, honest businessman. So if you're going to make money this way, it is honoring to God only if you do it with honesty and with wisdom. Another type of investment, obviously more popular, and I, don't, I, I can't speak to this a whole lot, but the stock market is the same idea. In the stock market, you take your money and you buy stock. You become an owner of a small part of that business and then you profit from that business's profits. It's like being a business owner except instead of owning the whole business, you own this much of the business. You don't really get to make as many decisions, but it's akin to being a business owner, again, with wisdom and with honesty, with good stewardship, with with wisdom, smarts. Take what the Scripture teaches and be wise with it, not foolishly. Again, if we believe Scripture is profitable for teaching and sufficient to equip us for every good work, then we have to be under the conviction that if we want to have wealth and honor God at the same time, we must either work for it, invest in it, or receive it as a gift. And even in all those categories, we must be honest and guard against greed. So see, it's simple. If you want to get money, don't do it sinfully, speedily, or selfishly. If you want to earn money, work for it, invest for it, or receive it as a gift. And the third one, receiving as a gift, you really have nothing to do with that. You just receive. So work for it, or plan ahead for it, invest for it, work for the future. That's simple. So simple. But it requires faith. It requires that Holy Spirit revelation and and otherworldly perspective be the principle in all that we do. Because again, when we start thinking in these terms and we start wondering, well, how am I going to pay this bill or how am I going to pay that bill? The only way I can do it is if I do this, which is ungodly. Well, that's off the table. So how am I going to do it? You must trust that God is faithful. So let me give you eight statements of application, just real quick. If we truly believe what the Bible teaches about God's provision and protection, even when we cannot reasonably see how He could provide, if we, if, if we believe, then we'll be blessed with a peace of mind and peace of heart knowing that He will provide. Even when times are tough, money's tight, we know He'll provide. Anxiety in those times is the fruit of unbelief and materialism. If we think God can only provide by me doing this to get that, then it's unbelief. If we truly believe that glory awaits us in the next life, we will not be so adamant about securing wealth and comfort and security in this life. If we truly believe God is wiser than we are, we will not be tempted to shortcut the process or transgress His commands in order to rescue ourselves. He's wise. He knows what He's doing. We have to believe. If we truly believe God is holy and righteous, that He must punish sin, we will not be so quick to adopt ungodly methods of obtaining wealth or entertaining ourselves. If we truly believe the Lord Jesus Christ was crushed for our iniquities, then we would not be so flippant or crass about the activities that we engage in that we know are sinful, but we just sort of laugh them off. Crushed for our iniquities. Don't you know Jesus died for that? 
If we truly believe the Holy Spirit of God lives within us, then we would not work so hard trying to argue about why our activities really aren't sinful. Saying foolish things like, isn't the stock market gambling too? Or you drive down the road, you're gambling because you could die. That's foolish. We wouldn't argue. We would humbly, gladly set aside any deed that gives the appearance of evil. Say, I don't want any part in it. If we truly believe that God has called us with a holy calling, chosen us before the foundation of the world to be conformed to the image of His Son, then any opportunity we receive to renounce ungodliness and unholiness, we would say, sign me up. Whatever it takes to be like Christ, I will do it. If we truly believed that the lost world will be surprised when we do not join in their flood of debauchery, and that they will see our good works and glorify our Father who is in heaven, we would gladly set aside any dishonest, lying, thieving schemes of man's kingdom in order to show that we are those who really trust in God. Not men, not money, not riches. We trust in God. We're not worried about that. You see, it takes faith. It requires faith. And material wealth, possessions, money, stands and represents all that is at odds with that. It, it says to us constantly, you don't need God. Don't worry about that. You've got this. You've got this. You did it last time. You've got this. You know how to do this. Just, just, we have to trust in God. Now perhaps you've realized you have been partaking in some sinful activities. I hope that you won't brush off that conviction it's not a light thing to sin against the living God. Don't, don't brush it off. I pray that you'll flee to Christ for forgiveness of past sins. Seek the help of the Holy Spirit to give you grace and repentance and, and belief to, to trust in God. We've got to trust in God. Again, I think the Scriptures are clear. There will come a time when we won't be able to go to the store and buy. Maybe with our children or grandchildren. We won't be able to. They'll say, oh, you're a Christian. Sorry, we don't serve your kind here. We have the, the right to refuse your business because you're a Christian. What are we going to do? We're going to pretend like we're not Christians? No, we'll walk by faith. Maybe we shrivel up and die. I don't know, but we'll be obedient to God. Ask for the Holy Spirit to give you that grace to repent and believe. As we come to the Lord's table, that's where we receive that grace upon grace. So as the elements are distributed... Examine your hearts, and then we'll come to the table.